Good afternoon and welcome to the 182nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we discuss weddings, parties, and social life in the pandemic with journalist Allison Kruger. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 7th, 2020, there are 1,541,338 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 14,846,645 cases in the United States. There are now a total of 283,010 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 277,412 reported on Friday. Daily, that's more than the 2,403 Americans who were killed 79 years ago today at Pearl Harbor. And that number over the weekend is a little less than twice the total deaths on September 11th. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, New Mom Loses Newlywed Husband to COVID-19 by Jess Huff. This appeared in the Lufkin, Texas Daily News, August 19th. Sitting alone with a burping, gurgling, and hungry newborn, Amanda Helton is grieving the loss of her newlywed husband to COVID-19. Cody Helton and Amanda knew each other for years and remained friends after a failed attempt at dating early on. Cody moved back to Lufkin a year ago when the two reconnected. Everything just made sense. We both had the same energy, Amanda said. We were just a family of weirdos. We just all have these quirks. But in our house, that was never a negative. We always celebrated those weird things. All of the things that made us weird to others made us a unit. We were looking forward to bringing Luke home and to learn what new weirdo we got to add to the family. Amanda already had two girls from a previous marriage and Cody worked hard to be a great stepdad to them. I knew when I married Cody, he was my forever person, she said. I knew that was the last time I'd get married. The best thing about him was that every day was a good day with him. He was very funny and he did everything he could to take care of me and everybody who meant something to him. The two married in March with a ceremony broadcast on Facebook Live. They never got the full-blown wedding and they never had a honeymoon because they wanted to stay safe during the pandemic. We were trying to be careful, she said. It didn't work out for us, did it? Cody first felt the symptoms of COVID-19. He and Amanda went to get tested. Her results came back negative and his negative, but as his symptoms worsened, he went back for a second test and those results came back positive. Cody checked into the COVID-19 unit of CHI St. Luke's Health Memorial because his stepmom worked in that unit. He kept apologizing to me, Amanda said. He'd say, I'm really sorry I'm not there to take care of you. He could barely breathe and he was worried about me knowing I was home alone and quarantined. Amanda felt like a dangerous zoo animal as she recovered from the virus. Her friends and family tried to help as they could, but she remembered watching her mom through the glass as she dropped stuff off. When you're sick and grieving, everyone is there to take care of each other. You take care of stuff, you show up. Now I can't be around anyone. I can't even celebrate having a new baby, having something positive. Cody texted Amanda on a Saturday morning to tell her they were going to put him on a ventilator. Amanda had been in contact with Cody's stepmom about the issue as well. He messaged me and said they were going to put him on the vent, she said. He said, I'm really sorry, baby. I tried. I told him there was nothing to be sorry about. We all knew he tried very hard. We were proud of him and we loved him. She told him she'd patiently wait for him to wake up and he told her he couldn't wait. An hour later, Amanda thought the hospital was calling to tell her they'd put him on the vent. 
she'd already talked to Cody and his stepmom. I thought they were calling to tell me they just put him on the vent, but they just said, we lost him, she said. Cody was too weak to go on the vent, and the doctors lost his pulse. They tried to get him back and succeeded, so they tried to put him on the vent again and lost him. Amanda was allowed to go see Cody after he'd passed, but it was the first time she'd seen him since he went into the COVID unit. She had to completely suit up to go in and put on an entirely new suit to leave. Amanda was supposed to have baby Luke August 12th, but the doctor required that she test negative for the virus twice before she could give birth. She had two negative tests and they scheduled her for August 17th. Amanda and her doctor were planning out how to let Cody watch the birth and see the baby afterward, Amanda said. I thought we would get longer together, she said. I thought we had decades to learn to live without each other. I didn't expect to lose him in our first year of marriage. Luke Cody Helton was born weighing 9 pounds, 10 ounces, and was 19.5 inches long on August 17th. I wish people would understand, Amanda said. It's really hard to look at Facebook and see people saying this isn't real or serious, and I'm going through all of this. I hope people take it seriously. Some think that they're young and healthy, and so they're going to be okay. You don't know if you will, and you need to give, you need to care about other people. Okay, I'd like to turn to our conversation for today, and let me introduce my guest, Allison Kruger. Allison's a freelance journalist in New York City, and she mostly writes for the New York Times, covering lifestyle and culture. You've probably seen her articles over the last few months. We're going to talk about many different dimensions of her writing, from weddings to parties to coming back to work to masks. Allison Kruger, thanks so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. I think we just have to, un there we go. I said, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great. It's great to speak with you. I've loved your writing and I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, can we just start maybe um, the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic is there today? Yeah, um, I'm calling from New York City, from the West Village, where I live. Um, you know, we're actually we're very lucky in New York that our numbers aren't what they are in other places around the country. but you definitely feel like there might be some sort of restriction coming on soon. <laughs> right now we're all just trying to uh, meet outside, have some drinks under some heaters and blankets and take it one day at a time. Let's go back to, uh, well, let, actually let's go back pre-pandemic if we can, because um, it, is this your beat before the pandemic started, writing about weddings, writing about social life? Yeah, kind of. I've always been, um, I'm a, because I'm a freelancer, I really have the luxury of writing about whatever interests me. And it's always been um, lifestyle. So profiles of interesting people, new businesses, um, how people are dating, partying, operating their families, all sorts of things. So the pandemic has definitely been so interesting because it's like writing about a whole new world. I feel like I landed in Mars and <laughs> everything operates differently now. How early did you get the feeling that the kinds of stories you're used to covering were going to change fundamentally? I mean, this year, to a certain extent, every story, the issues you were just talking about, you had to learn not only to report them in COVID times, but also to report them as vastly different kinds of stories. When did you first get a sense things were not going to be the same? Yeah, um, uh, I guess it was, uh, there was... It was early March, and uh, the first pandemic story I wrote was uh, that the headline was "The Handshake Is On Hold." And <laughs> at the time, we thought this was the biggest deal; like nobody would be shaking hands ever again. And uh, little did we know that was the very tip of the iceberg. Like, can you imagine if the only way our lives changed is we couldn't shake hands? <laughs> uh, but that felt like, you know, that was uh, it, it was a very it was a very interesting week in New York. I mean, there was. Um, I remember it so vividly. It was like people were still going about their lives, but you know, there was hand, we, everyone was using hand sanitizer. And I personally like stopped hugging people that week. Um, and I had a doctor make fun of me for that. <laughs> so, it, you know, it was a, it was a very interesting week where life was changing, but it also wasn't changing and no one knew what was going to happen. But, you know, it became, um, the, the city shut down very quickly. And if it, I actually, um, fled to my parents' house in Tennessee early on mm. um, because I have a, an autoimmune issue. So it became very clear to me that uh, that 
this was going to change everybody's lives and that all the stories were going to be pandemic related. All my other stories got killed within like 36 hours. <laughs> really? Yeah. Everything that, everything that was scheduled was just, you know, was tabled for a while. So one day you'll, you'll read them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Maybe right. in 2025. Or <laughs> but that's so interesting to me because, um, you know, people who study disasters for a living, I mean, one of the things that's really fascinating to people is how they make sense of disaster, particularly when the experts aren't in agreement. And so mm -hmm. one of the things naturally that we rely on is our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, like the people we interact with on a social basis who are not physicians, who are not epidemiologists, who are not the president of the United States or the governor. And so even your story about the handshake, very early on, this question, I was talking with some other friends about this, you know, in March, early March, you could go on, I'm assuming the subway, certainly on the train, oh, yeah. few people wearing masks, most people not. At no, work, some people doing the fist bump. I remember I, there was one guy who came up, he gave me the, I don't even know if they ever came up with a name for it, the foot tap, so he oh, tapped yeah. feet. I thought, yeah, and it's like, it, it's a sense-making process at that at that juncture. And we're making sense of it through our very close so, social ties, I think. Yeah. That, that's exactly how it was. It was, um, I mean, I, I will say with all my articles, they hardly ever come from experts. I mean, it, it's mostly what I'm writing about is things that I see in my day-to-day -day life. Or, you know, I always have a rule, like, if I see something and I can't wait to tell my friends over dinner, like, that's a story. You know, the, you know, if we, if we talk about it longer than 30 seconds, you know, that there's something there. Um, and it, that's exactly how it was. It was, you know, some people, it, th that handshake story was so interesting. I mean, some people were like, didn't even think anything existed. And some people were like, you know, stocking up on N95s, like the ones with the radiator, mm -hmm. you know, the, the uh, filtration systems or whatever in them. So. It's interesting because at that point you, you probably had uncovered a clue to the fact that Americans were not going to reach a consensus about the pandemic. Well, the thing is, it was so funny because, you know, we had been, um, you know, this thing called coronavirus that started in China was very much on our minds since January. And every, I, I remember I go to Sundance Film Festival every year in Park City in January. And um, <laughs> one of our friends couldn't make it because he got sick. And everybody was like, he's got COVID. You know, he's got the coronavirus. But nobody linked it. You know, that... It is shocking to me that that Sundance, we went to indoor movies and indoor parties and hot tub parties and thousands of people in a room. And, you know, there was no um, sense in my world, at least maybe I, I live in a dumb world, but there was no idea that this was going to impact our lives. It was just, it was still this crazy thing was happening across the world. But looking back, I, I don't can't imagine why we thought that. Like there's so many flights that come in from China daily <laughs> and mm -hmm. so many people I know go there for work. And, um, it was definitely a, a dichotomy of of knowing about something happening, but understanding how it was going to affect you at the, in the early days. I was talking with a, a social scientist at the University of Iowa last week, who's an expert on rural populations, and he was describing that same phenomena, but from the rural perspective. That even though for months people could see what it was doing in big cities, it still felt too distant. It wasn't part of their lives and part of their world until all of a sudden it was everywhere in their lives and in their world. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about weddings. Um, so you've written, that's been one of the stories you've been following through this time. I guess, first of all, maybe set the stage for us a little bit. How big an industry is, is this? Tell us the seasonality of, of weddings and then take us a little bit into some of your reporting on it. Yeah, I mean, um... I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say I'm a wedding expert by any means, but I wrote my okay. first ever New York Times article about weddings, and I've been doing it ever since. Um, you know, for, for me, weddings are so interesting because they really represent what's going on in real life. So, you know, when, when social media and Instagram became huge, weddings were becoming more elaborate because everybody wanted to put them on Instagram. And, you know, when, when fine, you know, financial values change, everybody started acting differently at their wedding. So I always saw weddings as like a really interesting way of understanding how the world was working. Um, and, you know, I did this story very early on in the pandemic where um, about about brides um, forming these support groups when their weddings were canceled. And it's so funny to me looking back at this story because the, the brides that got that were getting married at the end of March were canceling their weddings and they were totally distraught. Like they thought they were the unluckiest people in the world because they were the only ones that had to do this. The, the brides that had weddings in June were feeling very smug. 
<laughs> and they were like, good thing I'm getting married in June. Like my wedding's going to be fine. There was no, there was no sense right. to them that their weddings were going to be canceled also. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it, and, and then I think weddings happened the same way everything else happened. They were, they were canceled. Everybody was very distraught. There were businesses were extremely worried. And then people started to adapt. You know, as soon as you, as soon as places started opening up and you could have 10 people, there were 10 person weddings and then there were 50 person weddings. And then you know, states had these crazy capacity laws of like 25%, but some of these wedding venues can fit like a thousand people. So they were having 250 person weddings and even under legal, um, you know, the legal requirements of their state. Um, you know, and then, and then people started to evolve and all these new companies emerged for the new kind of wedding. And I'm, I'm super interested to see how weddings will even be impacted after coronavirus. Cause the lesson that I'm hearing is that a lot of the people who canceled their big fancy weddings that were going to cost a hundred thousand dollars ended up getting married with their 10 family members and having the most amazing present ceremony where they really felt like it was about the love of the marriage and not about the DJ and um, they took a hundred thousand dollars. They put a debt payment on a mansion. But so I, I am interested to see if if the value shift has changed completely, mm. or if you know the vaccine is going to come out and everybody's going to go straight back to having um, big parties. There'll be I I don't know the answer to it. Well, I mean, maybe you can. And I take on board, you know, that you write about a lot more than weddings, but I love your idea that that weddings, and I think we're also seeing that with funerals in these times, mm -hmm. tell us a lot about society more generally. They tell us about the economy, they tell us about social ties, they tell us about technology, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. Um, what were some of the trends that were already at play? I mean, was, were these, were weddings getting larger or smaller already? before the pandemic. And I suppose that's a matter of social class as well, but I know you're, you know, thinking about New York City, for example. Yeah, I mean, huh. you know, it's, it, it's interesting because I draw so much of my own life. You know, definitely as I, I got into my 30s rather than my 20s, weddings were getting smaller. You know, um, the idea of having uh, 10 bridesmaids in a matching dress was becoming more unappealing amongst my friends, you know, and, mm -hmm. um, and, I do, I do think um, weddings were getting more individual and, and brides and grooms were saying, we want this to be about us. Like we want this to be our special day. And um, you know, maybe we're going to make our own, I saw like Sonyville making their own homebrew, you know, instead of getting beer and, you know, it was disgusting, but it was something they made, you know, they didn't have <laughs> these things. And um, right. so there, I, and you know, I, I, I wrote an article, maybe, huh, I can't, it's so hard to remember if articles were like a year ago or five years ago, but uh, I, so, I hear you. No, the same. Yeah, some sometime in the past year to five years about um, people yeah. who were even you know skipping a wedding and and taking the money and you know going on a dream vacation or like setting up a college fund for their kids. So I do wonder if the trend was already starting. Um, I I heard. Listen, there's always who wanted a wedding always, and those people. I think everyone should get the wedding they want. If you want a 500 person wedding with everybody you and your parents have ever met, then like you should get that, you know? And, and that, those people have been very frustrated during the pandemic and a lot of them have chosen to postpone and, and do the wedding they want later. Um, and, but I do think more people were starting to, 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 to rethink, rethink weddings anyways. And, and I mean, just from my own circle of friends, I have at least two very close friends who were supposed to get married and ended up just basically eloping in a backyard mm. ceremony who felt relieved, you know, that literally the, the the law was telling them they couldn't have this wedding that they didn't really want anyways. And they were feeling mm -hmm. pressure from, from people in their lives. So I think it's very individual. Um, I, I just, I hope the message becomes like, you know, it's about who you are and it's about the values at the time. And it's, you know, it's about what, what you want, you know? And, and so the option of having a backyard wedding is there for everybody, like for the next, you know, till the end of time. <laughs> it's so interesting. And I, I mean, it, again, this, thank you for sort of that observation that, that maybe there was already a trend, a little bit more of a DIY trend, which, in big cities like New York is also just can be a function of money and and availability of places to have a 
a big wedding. Um, at, so let me just, let's focus in a little bit on that period of time, that early period we were talking about before, like March into April, things are in lockdown. And I'm curious, and I don't know if your reporting uncovered this, but um, first of all, I guess there's not, you know, compared to May and, A May and June, there are going to be fewer weddings at that time, but still people are having them. Were people able to recoup their losses on that? I mean, I'm I, yeah. just reconstructing the thinking as we were doing earlier. I was, I still had things on my calendar, like places I was going to go in April. Somehow, you know, as, as March rolled along, I guess I just assumed, well, this is going to resolve itself, even though I really knew it, it wouldn't. And I wonder how many people who had big events scheduled, including weddings and graduations, went into April thinking, well, we might still carry this off. And then by early April, it's clear that is not happening. I mean, April was a terrible yeah, month I, in the Northeast. I, I don't know. That I Oh yeah, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you now. Great. Yeah, sorry, broke up for a second. Um, no problem. I I didn't I didn't actually write about this, so I I I have no sense beyond my own circle of of mm -hmm. what was happening. Um, it was my sense that the people who were supposed to get married in like mid to late March or early April had a very easy time canceling their events because the venues were just like, please, we'll give you your money back. We don't know what's going on. Whatever. Um, the later you got, I think venues, photographers, all sorts of vendors started realizing every single client of mine is canceling at the same time. Mm. And that's when things got a little hard for some people. Um, because, because the venues realized that they are going to go out of business if they gave every single person their money back who canceled their wedding, you know? And, um, and on top of that, it became very difficult because the people people had to postpone their weddings, but people people were getting engaged throughout the entire pandemic. I mean, that like that was the crazy part to me is mm -hmm. I saw like so many people get engaged during the pandemic and they wanted to start planning their weddings. Um, so dates became tighter. And you know, we all know what happens when there's more demand than there's supply, you know, prices go up. So so my sense is that it, it was easier to everybody was a lot more flexible early on. Like the later the later you took action, the harder it was. Although, and I think it's mixed. I mean, I know vendors who were so accommodating and um, would reschedule anything or give money back. And I know, I know photographers who refuse to budge and you know budge an inch because mm -hmm. you know, honestly, it's not their fault either. You know, and um, and uh, and no one had pandemic insurance. So. <laughs> Right. No, never the Wimbledon tennis tournament had pandemic insurance. <laughs> so it was a very, very case by case basis. I want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and talking to Allison Kruger today about social life in the pandemic. And I want to just give a quote here from your story that you published a little bit earlier on this fall, um, November 7th. The title is Wedding Vendors Find Profits in the Backyard. So this story that you wrote really picks up, um, you know, as we move into May, I was going to have a little quote here and you start with... Um, a woman named Melissa Falstrom, who's the owner of a bakery in Missouri. And she's just like you were saying, she's starting to realize, I mean, the floor of her business is dropping out from under her. And then you write that spring, um, a few wedding related orders trickled in. But then you say it wasn't until late May that her real savior arrived, the backyard wedding. As shutdown orders lightened, couples had 10, then 20, then 50 person ceremonies Outside, they posted pictures on social media of these events, showing how they transformed ordinary yards into magical venues with fairy lights and flowers. Then even more couples gave it a try. So how did you discover this phenomenon and take us into this into this reporting? Um, yeah, so actually one of my um, former journalism school professors told me about a family friend who was making, um, she makes wedding cakes for fun and all of a sudden, 
people started hiring her because they didn't need wedding cakes that could feed 300 people, which she had no capacity to do. They needed wedding cakes that, that could feed 15 people or 20 people. And um, I thought this was an interesting concept. Um, so I started looking into it and I, I thought I was going to be writing about new businesses forming during because of backyard weddings. And there are a lot of them, but I also ended up discovering a lot of old businesses that really were saved by backyard weddings. Um, because as, as one vendor told me, I don't, I don't remember if I included this quote or not in my story, but she said a backyard wedding still needs a caterer, a photographer, a band, you know, a, an officiant, um, they don't need them at the scale, but the scale almost isn't where they make their money. You know, a lot of these vendors get paid hourly, so they, they don't care how many people are at the wedding. Um, so so these backyard weddings really, and and most of them were held at home, which is really nice. So you're so these these brides and grooms were supporting their local communities in ways that they might not have even realized at the time. You know, they were just trying to pull off an event of some sort. Um, so I thought that was just like a really nice story about people su literally supporting their neighbors you know and they're just their neighbors businesses right now so you got the sense that these are people who had a more conventional plan like they had a church and a restaurant set to go or a hotel or whatever they were able to cancel or recoup and then they had to pivot and then they discovered that the backyard was an option and this is all happening for thousands of well millions probably of people across the country in these couple of months as we go into may and june exactly yeah exactly and, and i would say most of these people didn't have even a wedding plan in their hometown they had destination weddings planned like they were they were going to go and spend their wedding money in uh in mexico you know or in um the desert somewhere beautiful. And, and, and so instead, you know, couples had to make a decision. They had to, they had to decide, you know, uh, some people chose to do the city hall route and literally not have a single party, you know, not have any party and then save their money for a wedding later. But a lot of couples decided they could do something in between where they could have, they could still get married. They could have their closest family and friends around them. Um, and they could do it and and I think they started seeing as people started doing this, all the pictures on social media kept coming up about how beautiful you can make your own backyard for an event like this. And um, it didn't have to be, you know, a, a sad looking affair. Mm -hmm. You could get a forest into your backyard and make it look gorgeous. And actually, I think it, for a lot of couples, it was more meaningful than they would ever have planned because it was at the place where one of them grew up and in their hometown and they're, you know, with their friend officiating and, you know, their, their high school, their old high school buddy doing the guitar music. And um, it's almost like a return to the, mm -hmm. I, I don't know how it was like in the old days, but this is how I imagine like village weddings used to take place, you know? And um, I think it's actually a really nice concept. I like the, your description of that. And it is, it's, you, you don't necessarily think your neighbors behind you or across the street are going to participate in your wedding, but there must've been many people who heard weddings over the summer, these kinds of events going on. I know where I live in Princeton, I was running through the woods one day and I passed a place that occasionally hosts parties and events and they were having a big wedding in the back, socially distant with masks and a beautiful setting. It was the last thing I expected to see. Um, yeah. My sister's in, in White Plains in Westchester and she said one day they went for a walk and they saw two weddings and like in people's front yards. Mm -hmm. Why not? Yeah, it's not something you would expect to see, but it is so much of this, you know, the home and the yard has become, well, by definition, it's become a lifeboat for people. So I guess in some ways, we don't, I wouldn't find it that, that strange, but it, you know, it's the most thoroughly planned event for most people who have a conventional wedding in their life. I wonder about the stress and strain of making those those changes. I mean, you're describing the sort of liberation of it to a certain degree. But I also wonder, you know, for people who can't, couldn't make the trip, um, for people who were afraid to congregate, I mean, even though public health officials might have been saying, yeah, you can get 50 people together. I know a lot of people, perhaps myself included, would have thought very long and hard before attending something like that. I, w I wonder if that came up in the reporting, just the stress that couples took on when they thought about bringing people. Together. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I wrote another article. I'm not sure if you saw it on um, on on weddings as super spreader events, and um, yeah. and uh, I mean, any 
any couple that's socially conscious breathe the side, you know, breathe the sigh of relief on day 14 after their wedding, no matter how big or small their wedding was, you know, and, and that's, that's not something you should have to do after your wedding. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you should, you should feel, um, I mean, anybody doing any sort of social event, I, you know, I feel that like I, I had a 35th birthday party in Montauk on the beach and like, you know, wanted 14 days after as well, even though we were on the beach and, you know, whatever, and outside in the wind and, you know, everybody was, it was the cases were very low. Um, but I, I, I think, um, you know, the, the, the couples made a decision and I, I know some couples who argued about it. One, one wanted to wait for the big wedding. One was ready to, you know, to get, to get it done with. Um, but it was it was a burden on their guests, you know, where um, even if you're attending a wedding with 25 people, it's a risk. And mm -hmm. I, and people had to decide, am I going to go? Am I going to be the only you know, am I going to be the only first cousin not to miss out on the right. wedding or am I going to do the right thing? Or I, I actually I chose to not to go to my best friend's backyard wedding that had 12 people because it was going to require a flight and. My parents, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to risk my parents. And it haunts me to this day that I wasn't at her wedding, you know, and, and she was fine and she totally understood and like, we're very close and it, it's not an issue, but it's just a really sad choice to have to make. Of, I always dreamed of being at her wedding, <laughs> you know, and, and I didn't get to be there. And I think a lot of guests, they, they just don't know what to do. And they almost wish they didn't, you know, I, I respect everyone's decision to do what they want to do, but not getting an invite is definitely the most stress, you know, the way to alleviate the stress altogether. Right, right. And that absence when a person has a choice, I mean, it's so layered, the anxiety that goes totally. along with that. Um, a couple of, of features that I just wanted to explore a little bit more with you. One is you, you write about Elisa Tong who's a wedding officiant who all of a sudden discovered that I guess she's in, in Stroudsburg. So she's in the Poconos mm -hmm. yeah. and the photograph in the times is quite beautiful. Yeah. So it turns out like if you don't have a big enough backyard, which a lot of people who live in New York or Philadelphia, that's not an option. Right. So now here she'll provide the backyard, huh? Oh yeah. She, she killed it. I mean, she really was uh, very well placed to make a nice little business during the pandemic. And then the process of the live stream, and I was thinking about just the obituary um, that I was reading about uh, Amanda and Cody Helton, which is a devastating story, but that they had their wedding and they live streamed it on Facebook it was another thing you wrote about, that that's been an area where those live, live streaming services, I guess to do it on Facebook is one thing, but if you want to provide a more tailored kind of live streaming experience, that's not so easy. I mean, speaking for myself, I'd be really nervous about trying to pull that off and do everything else that goes into these yeah. backyard weddings. What did you find in that regard? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I went to some pretty like terribly Zoom, you know, technology, te technology speaking, some pretty terrible Zoom weddings where, you know, it's somebody's iPhone, like you, and, and uh, it cuts out and it's not, it's, it's not of the caliber you would want to really feel present at somebody's wedding. Um, I think it's a brilliant business model. I think that's here to stay. I mean, I, I think um, there's always been people who can't make it to weddings. You know, if your your grandma or your grandpa isn't well and can't move or somebody can't take off work or, I mean, that's that's always been a reality of weddings and, and no one has really figured out what to do with those people. And now this pandemic has provided an, an amazing solution for that. It's pretty cheap, you know, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't hinder the wedding at all. It's the exact same wedding that the live people are getting and then the people who aren't there get to experience as well. Um, I, I think we're gonna be seeing that for, you know, I think that's gonna be part of weddings now. You hire you hire your florist and you hire your, uh, your mm -hmm. technology person. <laughs> Was that, I guess that really wasn't, that this is one of those inflection points where I think of this like distance learning, like, the technology had been there a long time, but just people hadn't fully embraced it. You, so you see it in that way. Yeah, that's how I see it. I mean, it's like, um, 
you know, I, I worry about people who work in an office now and when they go on vacation, like, are they going to be forced to like zoom into an important meeting yeah. because they can't, you know, it's, it's right. a real, uh, the, the world now knows that you can be very present at an event without physically being there. So yeah, I, I think that is going to be part of our lives. I guess that's true for weddings too. I hadn't thought about that for high school reunions and everything. You'll have no excuse to ever miss any anything like that no, if you don't I mean, attend. Definitely, there will be no excuse. And you know, I, I do wonder if, if people will, um, you know, they could spend five thousand dollars to go to someone's wedding, or they can watch it on Zoom. Like, what are they gonna, what are they gonna choose? But it's, about it's 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 a, it's a way to make more people feel included. That's the. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the super spreader events. I mean, there was this one in Maine. I think that's come to stand in for the kind of a worst case scenario. Uh, there was another one in Washington where some member of the staff at a nursing home had gone to a wedding and then it spread into the nursing home. Um, it, here you find the confluence, as you have written about and as we've been talking about, of people's desire to hold on to some kind of normalcy and joy in this time, even though highly modified. And that, as you said, sort of they're holding on and hoping for the best for those 14 days, but there have been really bad cases where that didn't work out. Yeah, I mean, I, I just heard about a wedding today that was that produced a, a dozen COVID cases that they know of um, in Florida. I. Yeah, the, the the funny thing to me is that a lot of the weddings that I interviewed were that became super spreader events. And, you know, I'm defining that term loosely, you know, it could be five people get it. It could be 500. Um, but you don't know that the effect of those people and who they spread it to and, sure. and all that sort of things. But, um, you know, uh, so many of them were like, it was fine. The wedding, the wedding was outside, you know, and mm -hmm. everybody was socially distanced, but then, <laughs> But then they would say, but uh, but we got our hair done inside before the wedding, or mm. there was an after party in somebody's hotel room. And when when you dig deeper in these events, it's like the whole thing isn't outside, you know. It, it added, especially if it's a, people are coming in from out of town to be together. I mean, they end up hanging out in each other's hotel rooms and, sure. and eating in a restaurant together. So, um, so that was like the funny part to me is people couldn't figure out where they got like what went wrong and. Once they started telling you about their weekend at that wedding, it was very clear, what, you know, what went wrong. Um, and and you know, weddings um, they they attract people from different geographical locations. I mean, you hardly ever have a wedding with all New York City people or all mm -hmm. Philly people, or you know, they, they by the nature of them. I mean, you have two families, and you know, and and you want people there from all parts of your life from college from where you grew up from where you live now so it they and and they involve drinking and they right. involve and they involve pictures so drinking plus pictures equals no mass no matter how careful you are <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so they really are a, a recipe for it and um and that's the risk you know and and and, and weddings with 10 people are just as susceptible to weddings with a hundred people. So I don't know if you uncovered it when you were doing this this reporting how public health officials tried to to police that. I mean, I know they're state by state. There have been very strict rules about how many people can be in enclosed spaces and what kinds, you know, of public health measures people should take. Um, did you discover friction points where public health officials were trying to police these these events and they couldn't? Um, you know. There, there have been a few like very high profile cases of this where, you know, the, the local authorities busted, a, you know, a wedding that they found. Um, I think because of the nature of these weddings, th there wasn't that. I mean, but kind of because of what I'm saying, because, you know, the trans the, the, the wedding itself followed the rules. You know, the, the venues were at the right capacity. They, you know, they the vendors were taking the right precautions. You know, they but it wasn't the wedding. It was you know, it was the car ride to the wedding or the after party after the wedding. And, and that's, police can't like come into someone's hotel room and find out if they're having an, you know, if all the, the wedding party is having an after party. I mean, that's so, um, 
So no one I talked to really did have an incident with the authority. I mean, the, the sad part is after it became clear that their event caused COVID, then they have to talk to contact tracers. And you know, can you imagine spending uh, your first days as newlyweds talking to contact tracers? <laughs> I, that that to me is why if I had been in the situation, I would have just postponed because it just seems so unsexy. You know, it's just it's uh, it's not that did, fun. <laughs> did you talk to did you talk to some people who? Had that happened, where they had to spend the time when they should have been writing thank you notes, worrying about contact tracing? Yeah, for sure. And, um, wow. and not just contact tracers. Like, um, I, I talked to this. Ugh, I talked to this one couple that really wasn't concerned about COVID at all. Don't like mm. in denial about the whole thing. But the brother of um, of the of one of the members of the couple was uh, doing his own contact tracing, and. Uh, reaching out to all the guests and the friends and the family and like trying to draw like seat maps based on, and it, it just, that's what people think of your wedding. Like that's, oh, that's so sad to me. <laughs> yeah. So the stress of the travel, the stress then of the being there. And then the, the, it's, it's a whole, it's a completely inverted version of the kinds of experience that most people would associate. And, if, and it's not a birthday party. You know, it's like, um, yeah. okay, maybe your 23rd birthday party got ruined because of a contact tracer. Like, this is your wedding. This is a once in a lifetime event. You know, it's 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 never going to happen again. And uh, you kind of want to have nice thoughts around it. <laughs> I wonder if those stories, I mean, I guess we'd have to do a little research or maybe you have a sense of it intuitively. As those stories come out, have they had an impact on people making decisions about fall weddings? Because we've moved now, I guess, into the preparation time where people would have had October, November, still possible to have outdoor weddings then in lots of parts of the country, and then into December, where it still would be possible in California, Florida, or in the South. Um, to be honest, I haven't looked into it that much because I'm just not working on any relevant mm -hmm. stories right now. But, um, uh, but I mean... All the all the vendors I spoke to for the backyard wedding piece, they they already assumed business was going to drop for for the fall and winter, anyways. Um, and you know, I do think as COVID has moved across the country in in higher numbers, um, it's 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 put a stop. I mean, I, I personally haven't heard about anybody in my circle having a wedding, you know, in the past month or coming up. Um, and I was hearing tons of it from from the summer. Mm -hmm. um, I will tell you, I'm working on a story now. Uh, there's, there seems to be a new phase of all this, which is uh, COVID waivers, liability waivers. So uh, any any outdoor or any in-person event now is uh, coming with a COVID waiver that you have to sign. So the the facility would require that. The facility or the or the party host. Really. Yeah. Stay tuned on that. That's amazing. Okay. <laughs> want to remind folks I'm talking to Allison Kruger about social life in the pandemic and I want to um, if it's okay on pivot to a different story um, this one um, also in the Times it came out November 6th and the title of this one is uh, what's it like to return to the office I really like this because it's just sort of a um, it's, it gives us into window into the into the various different experiences that people have when they find themselves having to come back to work yeah Maybe share a couple of the stories that really impressed you from from this reporting. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, what, as somebody who has worked from home my entire life, you know, and and never been in, an, in a real office. I mean, my, my first job was in an office, but for a few years, and then after that, I've, I've never worked in one. Um, I always assumed everybody would want to work from home. Always, I didn't understand the appeal of an office of having to get dressed and take the subway and like talk to people all day. Um, and really what I found is that people want to be, to meet in person and, um, and they were missing it. A lot of people were missing it. And, um, and I just, I just want to make it very clear. This article was crazy because it's less 10% of New Yorkers are back in the office. So we were talking to a very small minority mm -hmm. here, you know, 
very few people have experienced going back in. And um, a lot of them, you know, they, they, their work was harder when they couldn't just turn around and ask somebody a question next to you, or they, it was boring when they, when they weren't chatting with their work colleagues or, or even, um, you know, even superficial things like they, they thought they couldn't impress their boss as much, you know, if they weren't there in the same room as them. So people's desire to, to, to go back to the office, like blew my mind. Um, mm. there, there were people who were, were mad about going back into the office. Um, that I interviewed and, and they were mostly people who were either scared of COVID or didn't really, you know, love their office environments anyways, or didn't, didn't mm -hmm. trust the management there. Um, but it, I thought it was a really nice uh, statement, you know, a testament to human nature that people would rather be together than apart. Yeah. I, I was struck by that too. And you interviewed a, sh a chef, right? For that. I mean, yeah. that one, that really strikes me because, you know, there are certain professions that you just can't, do the work remotely you it's literally illegal to cook in your home kitchen right. <laughs> you exactly. have to, yeah you have to go to a commercial kitchen for that um and you know and 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 those people i mean their whole jobs have changed like what they're making has changed the items they're making how they're serving it who they're serving it to i mean the one chef i interviewed he was he was kind of bored because he used to cook for you know hundreds of people every hour and now it was like a dozen people and every all jobs have had to adjust to this thing. Yeah, I wonder, you know, it's in you also wrote about um just the party scene, the late night club scene of New York. And again, you know, people who are drawn to that industry, um, so we're talking about the work side of it here. Um, it's the it's the getting together. It's, I mean, that's, that's how the scene is made. It's not made remotely or distant. And I guess that's what you were sort of trying to examine with that piece is how much remote and how much distance can you bring into an environment that you intimately associate with elbow to elbow, elbow, loud music, you know, alcohol, chance meetings, all those kind of things. Can those kinds of parties be adapted to Zoom? Oh God. Um... I'm the wrong one to ask. I hate Zoom. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. I I hate um I I, I get so tired tired, like physically tired from it. Um I I think I really thrive off of uh, of meeting people in person and being in the same room and picking up cues. I, I I find it it's it's a whole different experience dancing your head off when you can see yourself. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> And um, rather opposed to in a dark room with strangers. And um, I think, I think with that being said, I think the nightlife industry has done amazing. I mean, I know a lot of people who are doing Zoom parties. I, I, I know some people who prefer Zoom parties, you know, and, and this is how they, they like it. They, uh, they, they feel safe. They, they can still have fun, but not leave their apartments um, or their homes. I, I do think it's a personal preference, but you know, my, my ideal is, I, I, I think the story you're referring to is I wrote a story about like, you know, clubbing during the pandemic and, mm -hmm. and it, it was amazing to me. I went to this one place and, um, you had to stay at your seat. You couldn't get up and dance and you couldn't talk to anybody else. It almost felt like you were a VIP because you were so roped off from other people. <laughs> you would have had to pay thousands of dollars for that experience before the pandemic to have your own area with no one else around. And like, yeah personal bouncer and your own waiter so that that's the funny part to me is people used yeah. to die for that kind of thing <laughs> yeah that's but, how you described it actually the club is like every different corner has its own crew totally and just like as you imagine sort of everybody's roped off which i hadn't thought of it just until you said it like that but that would be only for a very elect few people who go to the club in an ordinary situation acting like sardines and had drinks spilled on them and um, yeah right but it was still so fun. Like chair dancing was so fun. You could still see the people across the room and everybody was still feeding off of each other. And um, there was still bottle service. You know, you could you could still drink and eat all, all you want, you know, at your table and be with your own household or set of friends. So um, I think so, like the medium, I liked like the in-between stuff where you're still in person, but everything was safe and it wasn't illegal. And um and but with that being said, I mean that's never going to stick around because there's no way these these venues can survive on that few of people. Like they need to pack, they need to pack it in to to make any money. So well, actually, 
it was so funny. Like that story posted in 10 minutes later, New York City announced new regulations about uh-huh. about their nightlife. And most of what we wrote about was not allowed anymore. So, you know, that was that was a testament to me. That was a very, a very quick moment in time piece. But I, I that's why I like it, because you do capture that that moment, yeah. particularly, and I think it's true with the wedding pieces as well, that there was a time in July, August, September in New York, in Philadelphia, Boston, other parts of the country too, parts of California. I won't say we were getting back to normal by any stretch of the imagination, but it seemed that we were kind of accommodating a bit of a new normal. Absolutely, and we were thriving. But it seems now, as you point out, I mean, that piece, those pieces probably capture a slice of time because now we're going into the winter. I mean, these clubs, even if the cases abate in New York or Philadelphia, they're not reopening, are they? No. Um, you know, it, it's been so interesting. That That's actually been the, the, the best part of being a journalist during this time is every phase of pandemic has been different. And just when I assumed there was going to be, yeah, there was this point in April where I was like, we did all the virtual stories. Like we're never going to be able to write an article again until there's a vaccine, <laughs> you know. And then, and then the pandemic shifted, and everything changed a little bit. And every every phase has brought its new, its new creations and its new way of life that people adapt to, you know. And it would last for like two or three mo- months, and then it would move to the next phase. And I actually think we're about to enter. We're about to enter a very interesting phase because I think a lot of the ways we adapted to in-person socialization will be shut down because it's it's no longer safe as the cases rise, but. I don't see the Zoom stuff coming back. Like I, I just think people have fatigue from that. So I'm, I'm curious to know what's gonna, what's gonna happen. Like, are people just gonna not do anything, or are they gonna, you know, we've been. I'm working another story right now about everybody socializing in the cold. I mean, I've been putting on my ski outfits to go have a drink with a friend, and mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of fun. There's like heaters and there's blankets, and it feels kind of exotic. I mean, I don't know if it's going to feel fun in like if we've been doing it for three months. It's, it's very cold, <laughs> and but we'll see. You will see what the next phase brings. I think. I mean, we'll probably be looking at trends and what people do in Russia and Scandinavia because I agree with you, particularly the people who've moved to cities. I mean, I remember when I moved to New York, I don't live there anymore, but I lived in New York for several years. I mean, you'd moved to New York for the sociability of it. You knew you were going to live crammed into probably not a great apartment. You were going to pay way too much for everything. So the social life of the city was the was what you were there to get. And I, I don't think people are willing to just sit that out. No, no, definitely not. I, I, I uh, if I had a guess, I think we're... Uh... We're gonna see a lot of illegal house parties, <laughs> mm-hmm. and a lot of like um, creative outdoor socializing. I, I just found um, this company in New York. This jet ski company has launched a hot tub cruise, where you can sit in a hot tub the whole time. And I'm like, maybe that's the future. Maybe that's what we do this winter. We just like travel around in hot tubs. Or <laughs> wow, you know, I, I I I think especially in New York and other cities like Philadelphia. I li- I lived there for some time. I went to Penn undergrad, and you know I I think people will find a way to have fun safely. They have at every single stage of this pandemic, and I, I don't see this winter being an exception. And and when the vaccine comes, that's going to be interesting too. I mean, are there going to be uh, parties where you have to show a vaccine certificate? I mean. Mm-hmm. Everyone used to say that was going to happen with antibodies, and that never happened. But the you know the vaccine's a little different; it's it's more in your control. So, <laughs> well, I, I I wonder too. I don't know if you're going to be writing about this, but I guess Christmas time is a big time for weddings, also. Yeah. And you described the June brides who had a little bit of a smug attitude, like, "Well, feeling bad for somebody who had a wedding planned in April. Glad I was smart enough to plan for June." And then they had to find out they had to make a different plan. Yeah. I wonder if we're going to looking at that same effect now as we go into the Christmas season for people who'd planned parties, weddings, other sort of things that were going to be ordinarily at the holiday season. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, I, I, I don't know this for sure. I haven't looked into it. I have a feeling we're going to see a lot of canceled weddings for the holiday season. It, just, just as we're going to see a lot of canceled holiday get togethers in general. I mean, People are, uh, it, it seems to me like there are still people that aren't taking it seriously, but there's a lot more people around the country who are, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, 
and and venues are seeing the effect of it. You know, you you get one COVID positive and you have to shut down for weeks and you end up in the news. And um, so I don't know what kind of risk, especially if if you know in four or five months it might be safe again. You know, it's it's almost like if you right. can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Why not? I think we saw a lot of summer weddings because there was no light. There was no no one had any idea if this was going to go on for two years or three years or four years. So people said, let's just do it now. But I think now that there are vaccines and and there, people are talking about there may being an end to the pandemic, whatever that means, then mm -hmm. might be more willing to wait. I mean, we'll see. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. And I think, too, the public health messaging from the federal side is about to change really abruptly here. Absolutely. On yeah. January 20th, what's coming out of the White House is going to be completely different from what we've heard up to now. Just yeah. a quick reminder, I'm talking to Allison Kruger on COVID calls today. I've just, I know we're almost up on time. I just want to get one more question in. Um, you wrote a piece which came out just before Thanksgiving about masks. Um, that's a topic we've talked a lot about on COVID calls. Um, I had Sharona Pearl and Rashawn Ray on to talk about um, sort of aspects about um, masks and race and um, masks and religious identity. And your take, um, you touch on those issues, but you really also talk about um, some of the things I hadn't thought of about um, the degree to which some people have found social um, kind of social distress, social, I'm not finding the right term here, but social anxiety come down a bit because of masks. They see them as a way to avoid harassment. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you discovered in reporting this story. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, I can't take credit for this idea as my editors. And as soon as she assigned it to me, I was so excited because I thought it was the most brilliant. It's, it's a great story. Yeah. yeah amazing story. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, you. I have been hearing since the beginning of Mask how great it is that no one had to wear makeup anymore. You know, like people have been talking about some of the advantages for, for a long time. Um, but, I think it, it it's like you you can blend into the crowd, right? That's what masks allow you to do. They they allow you to just be one of the other people wearing masks, you know, wherever you are on the street or on the airplane or you know wherever you are. And um, for a lot of people, that is so refreshing. Like that's what they wanted their whole lives is just to not have somebody they don't want to talk to talk to them. Um, and and. I'm happy for them. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I think any positive we can derive from this. The, the, the interesting thing I can't wait to see is, is a lot of the people I talked to said they were going to keep wearing masks after the pandemic, and and I'm really curious to see if that happens because I mean I know I I got I get the flu every flu season even when I have a shot, so it, I'm just like, will I be wearing masks? You know, when when I'm on the subway and it's and it's flu season and it's cold and it's rainy, like is it going to be socially acceptable to just pull out your mask and, um, and well, you know, we'll, we'll see if that happens. Um, but I, I think for these people that, that really like want to want to hide, I mean, it, it's the same as, uh, you know, when the, when the pandemic first started, there was all these articles that came out, not mine, but I loved reading them about, um, how amazing this was for introverts. They finally, it was finally mm -hmm. social accessible to stay in and, and do their own thing. And I, th I think the mask, the mask story is very similar of, you know, it's finally acceptable to just like not stand out and to, to not be an individual and just to go about your business with nobody looking at you. Um, and it made a lot of people very happy. That somebody's uh, brought a question in, um via Facebook, I think, asking about if this anxiety has gone down, do you expect it will go back up when people don't have to wear masks? You seem to think that maybe this might become a almost a permanent function of our society. It would destigmatize the mask. I don't know. I I, I mean, I had, uh, as I said earlier in the show, I'm immunocompromised. I've had so many doctors try to convince me to put on a mask on an airplane. And I always was like, no, people like, I don't want to be the crazy person on the airplane. Yeah, you wouldn't do it. I think now people will be wearing masks. You know, I, I don't know if people are going to be wearing masks in the park in the summertime, but like on airplanes, um, on the subway during flu season, you know, in like very vulnerable times of the year may, where germs spread, maybe people will be wearing masks. Um, the, the people that with social anxiety, that that's gone down without their mask. I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, if if they want to wear their mask, I I think a lot of people are gonna just let them. I mean, why not? And I don't think we're gonna all go. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, coming full circle from our first conversation of this hour, like 
I can't imagine ever shaking anyone's hand again. Like, can mm. you? <laughs> I, I don't know why it's needed, right? Like, it's it's fine to just wait, you know, see someone and wave. And um, so, so maybe masks will be here to stay for for those people who want them. Well, I think it's also, I mean, that's one of the themes in that piece. Certain just social norms in our society, from handshaking to having full access to someone's identity whenever you want it, also is a form of a society built around um, expectation of male domination. I mean, and to move away from that society that's organized, a lot of times I think, you know, as you and others have pointed out, and men might not notice that, but a society built around the idea that business has to be transacted with a firm handshake, not that that's not something women can do. But I mean, that's a holdover from a business culture that was completely male dominated. That seems to be being readjusted at this time. Yeah. And, um, and you know, one of the girls I, I interviewed for my story, she said she used to get hit on by random men all the time and they would tell her she should smile more. And, and that hasn't happened since the pandemic. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, why, why should somebody have full access to your face and your emotions and, and, and feel like they can comment on them? You know, like may, maybe, um, Someone actually said to me something very interesting. They were like, I've also realized with masks that I could also just put on like a baseball hat and sunglasses and it, it has the same effect. Like nobody really recognizes you that way. So, you know, I wonder if, if we don't even need masks now, we realize that we can disguise. It's a, I, I think the lesson is it's okay to not stand out. You know, it's, it's, it's okay to just want to like disguise yourself if you're just running errands at a supermarket. Why not? <laughs> As we close out, I just want to get one last question from you. I've been asking a lot of journalists that I talk to this this question. I mean, you strike me as a kind of journalist as a when you're in a crowd, you're observing, yeah. you're seeing the trends. So there's something really uh, ironic and counterintuitive about being called upon to do this kind of reporting at a time which you can't do conventional reporting. Yeah, it must be uncanny to you in that regard. Yeah. Um... You know, it is a it's a lot harder sometimes because it's going into a, a scene and just describing it is way easier than getting a subject to like describe it to you over the phone. <laughs> you know, these wedding pieces, it's like, right. oh, what do the flowers look like? You know, like what were people doing? What you know that yeah. that's like you know pulling teeth out. Um, I, I actually will say, I mean, uh, a lot of interviews were done over the phone before coronavirus. Um, I think more than people realize. Um, the 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 hard part is, um, I mean, is it the the hard part was during lockdown was when you couldn't go out and and see people and you had to come up with stories digitally. I mean, for me, I get stories walking my dog. I get stories from going to events. I get stories from like, you know, just meeting my friends for dinner and hearing about their days. You know, if, if your ears are trained, you can get stories anywhere. So. For me, it was it was difficult the first few months when when you weren't interacting with anybody. And actually, um, the protest, the Black Lives Matter protest, really changed that. And that, that to me was a turning point because I was in Tennessee at my parents, and um, everybody was leaving their homes to go protest in New York. And that's when I said, like, I have to go back. I mean, hmm. New York, like, I can't get what I need anymore from my computer. You know, I like I have to be there in person and, and seeing what's going on and experiencing it. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few months, if there's uh, opportunities to do that or not. I mean, I hope that, right. Thank you for sharing that, that the, the Black Lives Matter protests, it changed your risk assessment, your sort of personal risk assessment. I mean, you, you balanced, you, you took the measure of risk and you decided you needed to be back in the city to be part of it. Yeah, yeah. I, it it was it was that, and it was also like, it wasn't just my risk. It was like there there wasn't really any. Even if I was really willing to risk it, like there wasn't anything to see for the first few months. <laughs> Do you know? Like even if I was like, yeah. I don't care about getting coronavirus. I'm going to go out and but like no, like literally nobody was on the streets. You know, so it didn't matter where you were. But right. once the protest hit, um, and I would say especially when people didn't get sick from the protest, that really that really taught people that you could go outside and. And, um, and, and that's when like the weird dating stuff started happening. Like people started going on walking dates and, mm -hmm. you know, there started being, um, you know, walking therapy started happening yeah. and, like, you know, people started like moving a little bit and, and meeting up with people in a safe way. And that's when the fun stuff really happened. <laughs> well, we'll keep tuned to your really excellent reporting at, at this time. Thanks for doing it. And thanks for joining me today on COVID Calls. I just want to remind everybody you can catch COVID Calls every weekday 
at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow we have uh, a researchers roundtable, so please join us for that. And Allison, thanks again for making time to visit today. Thank you. It was really okay. fun. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. Stay healthy. See you at 5 o'clock.